1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I am Jay Schiffman, founder of Choose Your Struggle, and today I'm chatting with David Herzberg about his new book, White Market Drugs, published by the University of Chicago Press. David is an associate professor of history at the University of Buffalo, and besides the book we're chatting about today, he's also the author of Happy Pills in America, From Milltown to Prozac. David is the co-editor of the journal Social History of Alcohol and Drugs. David, welcome to the show. I'm so delighted to be chatting with you.
0: Hey, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here.
1: So I'll say this. You know, we were chatting a little bit before we started, and so you know my story a little bit. And, and I'm going to read a quote to you really quick from page nine of your book. You said that one of your goals for this was to write respect respectfully about drug consumers, which means writing with care and respect about addiction. And, and as a guy who's in recovery, I first off want to say thank you for even attempting to do that, because too often, you know, I read these books, some of which I love. Very much for the book themselves, but they don't really even try for that goal. And other times they try and 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 do not succeed. And I gotta tell you, there was not a point in this book where, as a person in recovery, I went, "Oof, you know that was a little hurtful." You did not do that whatsoever, and I really do want to start off by just saying thank you for that.
0: Yeah, well, uh, that's really good to hear. You know, there's a lot of words in the book, and I and I try my best. It's a it's a tricky. Topic, as you know, and, and um, you know, I really worked hard for that because I do have respect for people who use drugs and for people who used drugs, and I don't want to be a part of robbing them of the dignity that every person deserves.
1: Well, and we'll we'll get to, I think, interestingly enough, the part that I thought you really pulled the gloves off was it was the conclusion where you went straight to it. And I loved it. Every part of that conclusion, I thought was point right on. But but you start out right on page one. You said in your introduction, something that really s- struck me and stay with me throughout the rest of the book. And I kind of read it through this frame, which is. You spent a lot of this book trying to figure out how you square, as you say, the brutal irony that our drug laws are too weak to restrain Purdue Pharma, but so strong they sent countless people to prison. I thought that was so fascinating as a lens to look at all that, that, that you wrote about here. And, and I would love for you to spend a minute sort of talking about what you meant by that and, and, and why that's such an interesting prism for the entire book.
0: Yeah, yeah thank you for that question the um, so in my world and I think in a lot of places uh, there is a tendency to assume that pharmaceuticals and drugs are are fundamentally different things right that that, that one is designed to help people achieve good things like health and and uh, stability uh, and the others are used for perverse purposes for pleasure and for deviance and things even though, they're, they're often literally the same substances or very close if they're not exactly the same. And so one of the things that I was trying to wrestle with in this book is how do we think past that division, not just at the level of, you know cocktail party talk of like, aha, they're really the same thing, but really look, think about how would we talk about drug policy, how we talk about drug cultures, drug practices, uh, drug economies, if we started from the position that uh, these are all the same thing, the same substances and the same set of human behaviors and human activities. And we want to understand how those differences were produced over time. We don't start by assuming we're looking at two different things. And so of course we're seeing two different stories. What would happen if they were part of the same story? What would that overall story look like? And it, what it looks like is grim, right? It looks grim. There's a body count on both sides. Uh, like you said there, that we we have laws that um, oftentimes actively encourage unsafe use of pharmaceuticals, okay. insufficient warnings, so that consumers don't know what the risks are. Uh, they know a lot about what the potential, benef- potential benefits are, I'm sorry, but but not much about the risks or not enough. So you have this marketplace booming. And then on the other side, you have markets that aren't even designed with consumer Safety in mind at all. They're designed uh, by uh, to to meet the demands of prohibition, which is very different than than consumer interests. So the strange part about it was that that um, what looks like this this terrible paradoxical irony is actually you're talking about two types of markets where consumer safety is not your primary concern, uh, and, and that trying to understand how we came to that. Came to such a nonsensical position. Like if you and I were just starting from ground zero, let's invent a drug policy. We would not arrive there, right? So how did it happen?
1: Well, and, and and I'll tell you this: when I was actually thinking about where to start with the conversation with you, it was difficult because you you do lay it out so perfectly, sort of three different eras, but there were so many thorough lines between these different eras that it made it very difficult to say, oh, well, there's a starting point. No, 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 but there's a starting point. And and personally, and and this might just be me personally, If any listeners who who have read your book and are now listening to this, I found the most fascinating uh, sort of story at the beginning was what you called uh, the worst case scenario of drug policy failure in talking about the launch Mm -hmm. of heroin. I thought that was Mm -hmm. so... Fascinating. Would, would you mind sharing a little bit about that?
0: Sure. Uh, glad, uh, I'm glad to. So heroin ends up becoming a blockbuster drug that is a best-selling drug essentially from, um, you know, about the early 1900s through, you know, a couple years ago, really, when it starts to get edged out by fentanyl and, and, other, um, and other substances in the illicit market. It just so happens that heroin was illegal for most of that time, but it was still this weird enduring uh, success drug, like well known by everybody, used by all these people. So it starts out as a pretty unremarkable drug. It's a, it's a gloss on morphine. Uh, opioids turn out to be one of these kinds of molecules that you could tinker with and produce all different kinds of analogs that have slightly different qualities, but they're all essentially the same drug. And heroin was one of the earliest um, interesting analogs of morphine. And it was introduced by a pharmaceutical company, Bayer Pharmaceutical, that you might uh, people might recognize them, and they make aspirin, right? And um, which was also introduced around this time. Um, And it's primarily advertised in it as um, for treating coughs. Uh, And it's a it's a pretty minor drug in medicine at this time, but it's got its uses here and there. Um, But what happens is that when when authorities criminalize smoking opium, and this the final ingredient of this criminalization takes place in 1909, um, there is this large group of people who have been smoking opium and are not uh, authorized to get medicine from a physician. They've been buying smoking opium and, and smoking it in kind of social settings. Uh, smoking opium is now illegal. And, and smoking opium happens to be bulky it's sticky. It's smelly. It's a terrible product to smuggle. It's, it's not. It doesn't meet. It doesn't have the right qualities for a prohibition market. It's not going to be selected for. It's not incentivized in a in a market that's pro, uh, prohibited. So uh, this kind of use of opioids, use that's not sanctioned by physicians, that's more social in its use. Um, This market shifts from a bulky, hard to smuggle product to heroin, which is easier to smuggle because it's much smaller and uh, it has no odor. And it also because it was a minor medical product, it didn't have a bad reputation yet. There hadn't been tons of people becoming addicted to it and producing all these uh, horror stories in the press. It was known as addictive, but it just wasn't used widely enough to have gotten that bad of a reputation yet. That's when the bad reputation came is when it started to be adopted by, you know, um, what someone uh, like myself at the time might've called the dangerous classes, uh, you know, a middle class, you know, elite person like myself might've looked down my nose at these these folks who didn't have good access to the medical system. And I might've um, given them this menacing term. And when they start to use heroin, um, heroin becomes a dangerous and scary drug by association with people that I already think are dangerous and scary. And and, um, and it also, it's the qualities of the drug and the qualities of the market where it's purchased do exacerbate that, right? You don't have people having full information about the drug they're buying. And as a result, it does produce addiction and it does create uh, exigencies in the lifestyles of people who um, who are already living close enough to the edge that that kind of uh, relationship with the drug uh, makes, uh, makes it, Considerably harder for them in those communities. So you have a you have a problem on your hands, right? You have a drug that's being used in ways that is clearly um, harming some people, and it's also scaring authorities who are scared by the communities where it's being used. And uh, what they do is instead of thinking about this as um, how do we how do we try to improve consumer safety, how do we how do we help these people? Uh, either use this drug safely, or, or stop using this drug safely. They end up totally criminalizing the drug. So it gets—it's—it's it's relatively minor medical uses; those become illegal for the most part. It's not illegal if you have a, a bottle that you had from before the law, but uh, essentially it becomes totally illegal. And what this means is you've lost the opportunity to regulate its use with a goal of consumer safety. The people who care about consumer safety, those white markets, where physicians and pharmacists, they can't sell it at all. And the only places where you can buy it are places that are way more determined by the need to avoid the police uh, than they are by the need to serve uh, the interests of consumers. So it's kind of, it's a worst case scenario. You you lost all the possible benefits and you magnify all the negatives, both the negatives uh, of using a drug with Im- with insufficient consumer protections, and also the harms of drug policing, which further make trouble for people who are already, uh, you know, in trouble.
1: And I'm sure everybody who listens to this network, well, I guess I shouldn't assume, but probably most people know that uh, race and class are very much tied up in the history of of drug use and, and addiction in this country. But one thing that I really found interesting that you highlighted in your book very well, I thought, was that there was a point in, in the late 1800s and early 1900s that there was an honest belief that only the sort of white upper class struggle with addictions. Everybody else, it was a moral failing that that, that they were able to create these distinctions in their minds. It was a bit of mental gymnastics that this was, you know, it, you had to have already been pretty well off to, to, to struggle with addiction. Otherwise, you were just sort of the riffraff like you were talking about.
0: Yeah. So, right. I mean, if you look at the way that, that people discussed or represented addiction at, in the late 19th, early 20th centuries, when they write about people from the property classes, from these white Anglo-Saxon Protestant people who, who visited doctors and such, they're portrayed, I mean, it, their state is portrayed as horrifying, but they themselves are incredibly sympathetic characters. Like they're struggling to be free they're struggling to maintain their dignity against this fearsome foe that's not their fault they were you know this and that uh, whereas if you look at the the way that drug use is represented in other folks it's like these are these menacing people who like are purposefully deviant like what they wanted to do like they wanted to get addicted they wanted to behave like that and they like it you know and 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 so uh, you you look at these two descriptions of Humans doing the same damn thing, right? They're they're both using opioids. They were trying to relieve suffering or pursue pleasure. And I, as a historian, like I find it very difficult to draw the line between those two things. It's a very both of them are totally normal human activities um, that can have you know risks associated with them, depending on how you're doing it. But that, but they, but they process the, that human behavior so differently. Uh, even down to the point where they're like, they're uh, at one point, uh, they're uh, a, uh, I think as a physician in a medical journal, if I'm remembering right They're they're mocking Chinese immigrants for like, oh, they'll just, they just think smoking opium is a cure for anything. And this was at the same moment that every doctor across America was prescribing morphine for like, oh, you got a cough, morphine. Oh, you hurt your wrist, morphine. Oh, you've got your period, morphine. Oh, you've got hiccups, morphine. And th- they literally were incapable of recognizing that the same thing was happening. Uh, it is it is still astonishing. You can hear it in my voice. Like I, I must have been writing on this for 10 years, and it still blows my mind.
1: And that sort of again mental gymnastics that comes from racism and classism is a through line throughout your book you know i mean even to today but before we get into sort of the the, the modern day you know we were talking about the more ancient history of the late 1800s early 1900s but you did focus on a middle period between that uh, the, the sort of the, the the groundwork of this and then the modern struggle that we find ourselves in now uh in your eyes, what, what is a good story that sort of um, uh, best illustrates that middle middle period for us?
0: Well, I mean, let's see. It depends on whether we're talking about opioids or that, So the book is about uh, it's a it's a history of the three classes of uh, addictive medications uh, or medications that can be potentially addictive. So that's uh, opioids and stimulants and sedatives and in a way that the the most uncharted territory that the book covers the story that that you won't find anywhere else is the history of opioid pharmaceuticals from the moment heroin was criminalized fully criminalized in 1924 to the moment oxycontin comes out in 1996 like we got lots of stories of the before heroin and we got lots of stories of the after oxycontin but it's just kind of a black box those 70 years in between And one of the questions I sort of started out with in writing the book was, everyone's always asking, why did the opioid crisis happen in the 1990s? And I was like, well, wait, given what I know about the history of the pharmaceutical industry, why didn't the opioid crisis happen before 1996? What on earth could have stopped it? I mean, opioids were legal. They were prescribed. They were advertised in medical journals. And every other pharmaceutical that I've ever heard of, you know, gets hyped out the wazoo and gets over-prescribed all the time in cycles, this kind of boom-bust cycle. Did that happen with opioids? So uh, a third of the book is devoted to telling this story. And what I found there was pretty surprising and actually difficult to wrestle with. So it turns out that there was a whole parade of would-be Oxycontins before Oxycontin, some of them the exact same drug, literally oxycodone with a different brand name, and this whole parade of drugs throughout the 20th century, pharmaceutical companies were saying, aha, you know, we solved it. We found a way to make an opioid that isn't going to addict anybody. You can prescribe it for everybody and their brother. This is so great because pain and suffering really suck, and it we want a tool to deal with that, and we really do, and we've got it now. This is great. So the question is, you know, why has no one ever heard of any of these miracle drugs? Um, what happened to prevent an explosion of um, of use of these in the past? And th- the answer is um, that when in the early twentieth century, when the the federal government granted itself these incredibly powerful tools to police. Uh, racialized dope themes, right? In American society, it's a lot easier to convince. Uh, it's a lot easier to convince white Americans to give the federal government power if the federal government is saying it's going to use that power to police scary black and brown people or immigrants or things like this. It's it's uh, this is, is sort of a a recurring pattern in American history. But when the government was given all this power to to control and police these uh, populations viewed as scary by by, um, the nation's elites, those powers were also usable against the pharmaceutical industry producing opioids. Because at the time the law was passed, there wasn't a distinction between pharmaceuticals and illicit markets. So they were just like, here, here's a heavy club that you can use to beat the head of people who are selling opioids. And who were the people selling opioids at the time? Well, it was the pharmaceutical industry, it was the pharmacists, it was the physicians. In a lot of cases, even those informal markets we were talking about, oftentimes their supply was like a pharmacist who would sell to someone who would then sell on the street. So um, what happened was that, that this uh, it, there's this outpost of this incredibly strong regulatory state built around controlling pharmaceutical opioids at a time when you, you couldn't get Anything close to those powers uh, given to the FDA or really any other uh, commercial market, and so the uh, this this um, Harry J. Anslinger, that kind of fearsome head of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, rightly known as a racist who was happy to just make up whatever he needed to get his thing done, that dude was partnering with the nation's leading addiction pharmacologists and reading uh, opioid advertisements line by line, negotiating with companies saying, you got to change this line because my pharmacologists say that it's, you know, that this isn't accurate. Uh, He was bullying them saying like, hey, well, you saw what happened to heroin. Uh, You know, you got a nice drug here. What if that would be a shame if something happened to it, too? And the companies are like writing letters say, oh, yes, sorry, Mr. Anslinger totally didn't mean to overstep the bounds. And for 70 years, this um, you have this this challenging irony that the kind of strong controls over big corporations that if you're that that you want in a in a market for dangerous products that it was achieved but was achieved at this terrible price of this uh, racist police power like it was it was bought at the price of um, of not just emphasizing stereotypes of scary, immigrants and black and brown people, but literally policing them and locking them up. And so that, you know, one of the questions is, can anything from that be salvaged? Can you salvage some of those strong controls over corporations? Can you achieve them without buying them at this, at this awful cost?
1: Well, uh, it's funny. Every time someone says, uh, you know, the name Harry J. Anslinger, I just seethe. I I think he's one of the (laughs) one of the forgotten villains of of American history that the average person knows nothing about. And yet so many of the horrible things he did still affect us today. It's it's mind boggling. But but you you I, I love a part of your book where you're talking about this this moment we had sort of the late 60s. Where, as you described it, we had a confluence of the civil rights uh, movement helping people rethink a lot of the systems that are that are sort of in place in this country. And you had a bunch of white kids smoking weed uh, and to a lesser extent, as you point out, using heroin that really gave us an opportunity in this moment to make some changes. And you start seeing some some hearings Um where I love this quote you have from a California representative. He says uh, mood control substances are legally available and their use is increasing with society's approval. Mood control substances are illegally available and they're, they are increasing, but condemned by society. These two statements are contradictory, but both are true. As a matter of fact, many instances they're the same drug. No wonder we are rightfully charged with hypocrisy. What a strong statement. Mm -hmm. And yet, so true.
0: Yeah, so at, at that time, one of the things that happens is they they managed to put a clamp down on pharmaceutical opioid use, and it's pretty restrictive for seventy years, probably uh, more restrictive than than necessary. But there's still a large population of people suffering from a lot of different uh, from a lot of different kinds of psychological distress, and a lot of physicians who want to do something to help them. So they turned to these different drugs as specifically sedatives and stimulants. And by the time that guy was speaking, I think in the in the 1960s, um, these new white markets for uppers and downers had just blown out the roof uh, because, you know, addiction, according to experts, uh, you know, addiction had gotten associated with these urban immigrant or increasingly black and brown populations by mid-century. And so that the, the idea that they were the ones who were at risk of addiction had begun to um, be common sense amongst the people who were making policy. And so it was hard to convince people to, you need to rein in sleeping pills and amphetamine stimulants because you know they're being sold by white doctors to white middle-class patients. And, and these are respectable people. They're not going to become addicted. And so that market was allowed to just spiral out of control. Massive, like the, uh, uh, you know, I, I sometimes struggle to try to explain how because it happened so long ago, people want to see it as kind of this old timey drug crisis, but in fact, you know, the uh, the number of fatal overdoses, the number of car crashes, the number of suicide attempts were were less than the present crisis, but not by an order of magnitude, like this was a real serious public health crisis. And this guy was kind of recognizing like, wait a minute, on the one hand, this country is investing an enormous amount of money in trying to convince people to use these drugs, like an enormous number of resources. A lot of people's jobs are there to, to convince people to use these drugs. A lot of money goes into building a whole infrastructure whose goal is to put pills in mouths and at the same time we are investing all of this money into preventing people from using those same drugs and he's saying he's he's one of these voices at the time saying let's uh, we need to challenge this uh, illogical kind of setup and really think about what we're trying to accomplish here um, and so it, it's it's the start of a really remarkable moment probably the only moment that gets close to rational drug policy in this whole 150 years it's a little bit of a depressing thing to say but but, you know, at least we got that. It could be nothing. <laughs> right? and, and there's it. So
1: first off, that's so sad that that's that's our bar and it's such a low bar. Uh, and we we can't even clear that one. Um, but you did have another quote in there that there was I I I read it and I went back and read it again. I was just I, I just had to shake my head. And, and you had uh, it was during these same hearings. You had an expert, an, an addiction ex- expert saying control of addiction will never be achieved by sending addicts to jail. That's in the late 60s, early 70s. And here we are in 2021 and we still have not wrapped our mind around that idea. And, and, and that, again, as a guy, as a guy in recovery was simply maddening
0: yeah I, you know it's one of the things and I teach on this topic. I teach a history of alcohol and drugs every year and and one of the things that I get most exercised in the class is that the trap of punitive policies is that um, they don't work, right? That they simply don't work. But when they don't work, it becomes a basis for doubling down on them. Like, look, the problem's getting worse. We need to crack down harder and the crackdown doesn't work. Well, we need to crack down even harder. Look at these, you know, scofflaws kind of laughing in our face at this. We'll show them. And and there's this way in which uh, it's this little bug in the system where failure actually reinforces <laughs> the, the policy at hand. So, you know, there's no, um, it's really clear when you look at uh, uh, the past 150 years if, uh, and I hope it's clear from, from the book that policies that work are you regulate Uh, Like that, what makes drugs especially dangerous is the profits associated with them. That that convinces um, companies or or people to sell them uh, in ways that are dangerous. And so, what works to help protect consumers is to regulate the ability to pursue profit without restraint in selling drugs. Like regulate pharmaceutical companies, and or, or regulate anyone who sells drugs, but regulate them with the goal of consumer safety. Don't regulate them with some fantasy that, oh, n- people are going to no, know, nobody's going to use drugs anymore now because it's illegal. And I'm sorry, as a historian, like, show me, show me the time and place where that ever happened. No, what we want is that when people do use drugs, that it doesn't become a, a life-altering bad experience for them. A- and so, you know the that but that we keep coming back to these throw them in jail when it's so clear that that people's behavior can be you know that the behavior of companies and sellers can be um, so powerfully altered with with carrots like there's a, there's a good honest money to be made selling products that people want to use in a safe way you may not make a killing you may not make Purdue Pharma money uh, and maybe. Maybe you shouldn't be able to make that kind of money selling these products they are too dangerous. Um, but, there, but you know, we can we can incentivize you by offering an honest profit selling drugs honestly.
1: So there, there's definitely a piece on on sort of our capitalistic society we live in that we need to talk about. And, and you do a really amazing job of sort of pointing the finger at that in the in the conclusion. before we get to all of that, there is a, a particular politician that I think. Uh, bears mentioning in, in in talking about the doubling down on policies that do not work uh, and, and you make it very clear in, in this example uh, that it was done specifically for political reasons and that of course is Rockefeller. Uh, what an incredible story of a guy who, for a moment, looked like to be a champion, or if maybe not a champion, that might be a little strong, but at least um, somebody who had some good ideas and then just went straight the other direction for completely political reasons.
0: Yeah. So there's this period of time in the 60s and 70s when, and Rockefeller's part of this, when... There's an attempt to rethink drug policy, and this is this comes from two different directions. On the one hand, you have new regulations limiting big pharma and limiting their sales of sedatives and stimulants that have gone over the top. And then on the other hand, there's this attempt to rethink the punitive approach to non-medical drug sales and use and really... Think about um, at that time, the alternative was medicalization, seeing like, well, people who use drugs are sick, they need treatment. And Rockefeller was um, was uh, an early believer in this second thing of, of, of trying to approach drug users and addiction with treatment. But as it turns out, um, and, I, and I take this from uh, Julie Kohler-Hausman's excellent book, um, Getting Tough, that addiction treatment, politically speaking, it's a really hard sell. Number one, it turns out nobody wants addiction treatment facilities in their neighborhood, and people push back against that. And then when you start to take a marginalized group and you give them the message that they have rights, that they are citizens, that they are humans with dignity, well, it turns out that that's kind of a pain in the neck. Uh, to because people have needs and wants and they don't always want to do what you tell them to and they don't always agree with your vision of things and so politicians like Rockefeller uh, you know he he invests in this stuff and he just ends up pissing everybody off at him and he's like you know what when I look at the scene I'm already known as a liberal in a party that's getting conservative and I'm not getting any dividends from this policy Um, and you know to boot it's also not working for reasons that we could talk about as well like by his definition of working, it's it's not working, and so he he decides I'm going to go the other direction. I'm going to make a bold uh, 180. I'm going to say to the public, Look, I invested in all this stuff. I thought it was right, but turns out we tried it. It didn't work. I'm going to go the other way. We need to just lock people up. His original bill that he proposed was like life in prison, first offense, like no possibility of parole. Uh, it comes out a little uh, less draconian than that, but like that's probably the only. I think that probably ninety percent of the times you see the word draconian in popular usage is in reference to Nelson Rockefeller's drug laws, like the draconian Nelson Rockefeller laws. But they really were right, and um, and and he starts this mad race to end that experiment with um, this with addiction treatment and liberal approaches to the to um, addiction and to really re-emphasize the crime associated with drug use and uh it doesn't get funded properly until you know uh democrats are in power in washington and they are the ones who who do things like fund massive expansions of the carceral system but they but all the legal uh are put into place starting with Rockefeller in 1973 um and you know it's a it, it's, a, it's one of these tragic things because you had something that, you know, by my by my mind was really working at, in the early 1970s. And it's like it was a hot stove, like, oh, you know, America cannot have anything even approaching rational drug policy. Like, let's back away from that hard. First, let's lock up all the non-medical people. And then, hey, let's just free the pharmaceutical industry to sell willy nilly because, you know, we got to back away from both sides of this moment of sanity in drug policy policy. Uh, That was a sad part of the book to
1: write. I, I, I'm. It's funny. I can't imagine that there was much of this that wasn't sad to write. Um, But yes, that this period Mm -hmm. was especially tough to to read. And and you show again. I keep using the same word I've been using all along, which is these thorough lines. But you. Show that um, starting after this, like you said, take you know, the kind of freeing the the, the pharmaceutical companies, and, and one of the major sources of this sort of expansion is direct to consumer advertising, which explodes at a rate that if we if we were looking at anything else. I think rightfully so, we'd go, oh, my God, this is this Mm. is really troublesome. But because it's advertising, no one, I don't say no one, but there hasn't been that much focus on it. And the numbers for for listeners, just to help you understand, you say it went from 1.2 million in 1989 to 2.24 billion in 1999, which is unreal.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's true. And you know, if you don't mind, before even I, I leap into that, I want to make a, I want to make clear one of those through lines you were talking about, um, which is that that role of race. I, I didn't mention it in the in the Rockefeller story, but um, but one of the one of the one of the preconditions for that moment of sanity in American drug policy. One of the preconditions was civil rights activism. And second wave feminism, because the civil rights activists, what they did is they they challenged some of those scary racial stereotypes in white people's minds that made it make sense to uh, take people who are struggling with substance use and like say, oh, we actually think you're a criminal and you should go to jail. And that and so those those racial stereotypes had powered that approach since the late 19th century with Chinese immigrants and southern Eastern European immigrants, and then. When uh, you had African American and Latinx uh, migration into northern cities, it was all there to power it. And, and civil rights activists really took the fight to the white communities that had been voting for those punitive laws and said, "Look, you know, we're we're human beings. We have dignity. Like you can really recognize us as kin." And that made it that 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 helped make it politically uh, possible to imagine new ways to approach that issue. And at the same time, the feminists. Uh, at least one branch of the feminists, that a really strong one was the women's health movement. And they were basically, they saw that, you know, what better example can you have of medical sexism than doctors, like women coming to doctors being unhappy about X, Y, or Z, and doctors just being like, oh my God, you're such a, women are such a pain in the ass, always coming to complain about X or Y. You, you know, you should be happy mopping the floor here. Take some Valium and you'll be happy mopping the floor. And and the feminists are coming along and saying, all of this uh, addiction to these drugs that that doctors are throwing at women, that this is an example of medical sexism and this is something that we need to, we need to take women's problems seriously, et cetera, et cetera. And so they help initiate a conversation uh, about uh, pharmaceuticals and rethinking, well, wait a minute, maybe they're not all just safe. Maybe doctors don't necessarily have patients' best interests in, in mind, or maybe they don't always know how to best meet their patients' interests. And so these... This, this racial and gender um, politics made it possible to rethink both sides of this uh, failing drug policy and really reconsider uh, and really enable people to make the connection in their minds between people who are taking pills prescribed by doctors and people who are taking heroin sold on the street and say, wait, they're kind of having the same experience. I couldn't see that before because I had all these racial blinders on. I had all these gender blinders on. And so... Um, what, what Rockefeller is doing uh, is he's like, you know, racial stereotypes and gender stereotypes have really been a political winner in American history. And uh, and there's a way in which uh, all those drug warriors, Nixon and Reagan, after who followed his footsteps, well, I guess Nixon was a little too late to follow in his footsteps, but um, but uh, they, were, um, they were leaning into those racial divisions that helped... Both make it um, make it believable that, that 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 non-medical drug users were these scary criminals, and also believable that somehow white people didn't run a risk of addiction even when they were taking addictive drugs. So I'm sorry, that was a long detour, but I wanted to make sure because that that helps explain why like why would you say yeah advertise the heck out of um, Xanax or uh, Adderall or these things because the assumption is. That somehow um, whiteness, the whiteness that you assume is there of patients, people who can access the medical system, uh, that, that that that's going to protect them. They're not, you know, those addictive type people. Um, yeah. Uh,
1: and you make that very clear because and, and uh, when we talk about uh, what what has been called the opioid epidemic which really we need to start saying instead is the overdose epidemic um, mm-hmm. but specifically about opioids you know you have the three names of foley Portney, and, 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 and haddocks but you have this claim that opioids are not addictive and as you say so incredibly perfectly in this going to that point you just made that this this idea that they're not addictive is a new tool to accomplish the old task of showing that white market drug consumption is different in some way than black market drug consumption.
0: Yeah. So this was an area where, frankly, I had a lot of trepidation about releasing this this book into the public because there, for a lot of really good reasons, people make a distinction between dependence and addiction today and they in talking about drug use and i i understand and support the the goals of doing this as a historian i ran into this trouble which is that in trying to distinguish between you know you have a whole bunch of people who are taking a drug regularly over a long period of time it's such that they are never not taking the drug right so they are chronic consumers and there's been, since the late 19th century, there's been an effort to draw a distinction between like the good people doing that and the bad people doing that. There's good people doing that and bad people doing that. And there's been these different terms like, well, one people, they're like, they're habitues or they're hab- habituated and the other people are like dope fiends or junkies or that, that um, some people are dependent and other people are addicted. And the, and the goal was to try to, make it make sense that we were going to treat those people really differently. But from a historian's point of view, it seemed like a whole bunch of the difference between those people was like simply their level of access to a safe supply. Like the people who had a safe supply looked like they were dependent and the people who didn't have a safe supply looked like they were addicted. I mean, I'm sure I know that they're, that that, nothing covers every case with humanity, but that seemed like a really big thing. So I I decided not to use those terms and how that comes down, how that becomes relevant to the point you raised is that in talking about some of the language that was developed to, um, to defend chronic pain patients access to opioids. And this is something like J. David Haddock's term pseudo addiction. If you've read about the opioid crisis, one of these books, you will have heard this term. And the idea was, if you have a pain patient who is exhibiting symptoms that look like addiction, like they take their prescript to two different pharmacies, or they hoard their pills, or they run out of them too quick, they're not actually addicted. The problem is that you haven't given them enough opioids to ease their pain, um, and so the solution is provide them more opioids. Now, um, this becomes something that people point to as like example of the pharmaceutical industry completely... Um, buying off the medical system. but I have a more complex read here. On the one hand, this is this is kind of the perfect encapsulation of this desire to separate the good people who use drugs from the bad because there's literally, according to this theory, there's almost nothing you could do as a pain patient that would qualify you as addicted. like you could you could um, you could buy drugs off the street. And this is an example he gives and that, nope, that does not mean you're addicted. You could hold up a liquor store and nope, that doesn't mean. So what they're basically saying is, if you have been anointed as a patient, if you have health insurance and can go to a doctor, you literally can't become addicted. Whereas if you don't go to the doctor, it does not matter how you are using that drug. If you don't have, if you're not a pain patient, you're a criminal, right? And so what I was thinking is, Okay, if if the point is that people who are addicted, people who are who are um, dependent, addicted, whatever phrase word you're going to use, if they should have access to a safe supply because that's they're going to use drugs. Like, why are we reserving that just for pain patients? Like, why shouldn't someone who hasn't been given the blessing of a doctor but who's addicted? Like, why shouldn't they if you're defending their right to a safe the right to a safe supply? Why only defend that right for the class of people who have access to the medical system? So, uh, to me, it, this it, it's a really it's a really complicated ethical question that I think becomes much simpler when you when you um, recognize this this hundred year old effort to try to. Um, use class and race distinctions to dignify some people's drug use as as okay, and other people's drug use as, by definition deviant uh, and bad for them.
1: That is a a wonderful response to something that is very hard to to talk about in ways that I think a lot of people understand, although you know, I think that, uh, with this network, people people tend to get it a little bit more than than you know the average the average person on the street, um, and, and and you know that is something that uh, a, a writer that I love, David Poses, wrote about in his book, which mm-hmm. was that you know he did find a drug that that took away his depression. It was called heroin. Yeah. It just is is not the one that you can buy from the store, and 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 how for some people they just could not wrap their their mind around that that that, mm-hmm. that you know is it, he was using it in a way that if he had been buying something from a pharmacy, that would be more accepted. Um, it is a, a very hard distinction that you and I could talk for another hour and still not be anywhere close to, to, to uh, illuminating in ways that some people would mm-hmm. understand. I, I, as we're getting towards the close, though, I do want to sort of talk about one bigger, um, more more uh, meatier topic with this, and, and that is, as I mentioned on the way in, I loved your conclusion to this book. I, I loved... As I kind of said, that you seem to 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 take the gloves off and really went in in, in this conclusion. Uh, you, you start off by saying the history of American drug policy offers precious few success stories, which I thought was a perfect sentence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and you 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 go from there to say that you know the end of chapter one uh, is depressingly static. Is it, it, similar? The whole thing is depressingly static as as the end of chapter seven. Um, so, so my question for you is as we talk about all of these sort of uh, ideas and, and and we agree that we're kind of depressingly static over, over this period uh, – what can everybody in their lives do to help make a difference for drug users and those who struggle with substance misuse? Because this book is wonderful. Uh, I enjoyed it as someone who gets up every day and works towards these goals. But, but who is your intended audience and how can people who read mm-hmm. this take this information and go, all right, I can make a change with this?
0: Let's, it's a great question. And I'm going to say – right at the start, one of the intended audiences is is historians, and I would be glad to talk about what that means. But I think um, there are two other intended audiences. One is that, that I hope that um, people who participate in making policy, and this is not just politicians and their legislative aides and all that. These are advocates. These are voters. I hope that everyone who participates in that process can just get a clarifying sense of what are our goals in drug policy. And I I try to introduce, um, you know, that uh, think about people who use drugs as consumers, think about drugs as highly desirable, but highly dangerous goods, like maybe automobiles, and that our goal is to, our goal is consumer safety. And that means that we don't, um, we didn't arrest people who drove Volkswagens that had fraudulent emissions tests. We we cracked down on Volkswagen and, and uh, you know, so that we we um, the goal is to pursue safe regulations that will make it uh, less dangerous to do this human activity that we're not going to stop. So uh, I think that when you have, once you have a, a firm understanding of what the goal is, it can allow you to see through some of the fog and frankly bullshit that gets circulated around in lieu of real talk about drugs in our political discourse and allows you to um, uh, to craft more sensible policies and to vote for people who are advocating those policies, and I would just say that that I tend, I feel like um, I go between these two different groups who often like don't really like don't really have a lot of appreciation for each other. Put it that way, like that um, people who are anti-pharma, like who are the, the kind of the the left wingers who are like anti-corporate and these big pharma people and, and the anti-drug war people who are a different part of the left, like looking particularly at race issues and, and um, the new Jim Crow and this kind of thing. And, and, um, and I often like, I'm the, I'm the token party pooper in each group, like the, for the anti-pharma people, I'm like, you know, you can't, you can't use, you can't buy leverage over this big industry by trading in harmful stereotypes of people who use drugs and, and, uh, you know, you, there's no way to do that that isn't racist. There's no way to do that that isn't stigmatizing and harmful. You have to tell a story about these that, that is about unregulated capitalism. That's not about ooh, scary drugs. It's just about unregulated, ooh, scary unregulated capitalism. And then on the other side, I, I find, you know, I, I love David Pose's book as well. And sometimes uh, when I'm talking to, um, you know, groups who represent that point of view, there's this kind of sneaky libertarianism in there that they're like, that implicitly, they seem to be just saying like, yeah, it should all just be legal. And I'm like, wow, you do not want, you know, you do not want um, whatever GlaxoSmithKline, welcome, Sanofi, whatever we're, we're, uh, planet best corporation having just free reign to sell a, a drug that has real risks, however they want. There's that, got a hue to that middle line of you want a safe supply and safe supply in a capitalist context means really strong regulations of the suppliers and i think my what i what i hope is that at the at the political level people will keep that in mind that it's not an either or it's not either free market or prohibition those are both terrible approaches you want a genuinely safe supply which requires a lot of regulation and then at a day-to-day personal level just radically demystify drugs radically demystify the harms associated with drugs. We don't need special terms for people who use drugs. They are just consumers who are buying a product. We don't need special terms for drug dangers. all it, all products carry risks. And what we try to we try to make it so that people are less likely to face those risks. Drugs are the same. They're not they're not some magically different type of uh, consumer good. There's some not some magically different type of activity. They don't represent magically different human urges they are very much a part of what we do every day uh, both in our economy and our personal lives and we need to radically destigmatize and demystify and just accept the normality of using drugs and the normality of there being risks to using products and just you know dispense with this magic that was built out of racism and uh fears of uh, miscegenation and all this stuff that you know it's a century old We need to just reject all of that and radically rethink uh, the people who use drugs in your life, the people who used to use drugs in your life, and just um, uh, normalize it not in the way of saying that we no longer care about people's safety and just do whatever you want, but normalize it in the way that we care about people's safety in everything they do. And we can care about it in the same way. I'm sorry, I'm getting off on a little bit of a rant here, but uh, and I'll I'll, I'll I'll cut myself off there before I just launch into this. <laughs> no, so I, I, I love it. It,
1: and it. And it brings me around to what I want to, to be the last question is, you know, we are actually recording this on the day that it was announced that New York is going to try safe consumption sites, which is wonderful. Um, so I guess my final question, with that with that in mind, is I, I'm with you on the safe supply. I think that is the most important point that that is not ever given too much of a, a focus here. But it, because so much of your book was tough, I mean, you, this reading this history was tough. What gives you hope? What what after doing all this work makes you think? Because some of the things you just said are are exactly right, but very lofty when it comes to the, the, the political change. So what is it that gives you
0: hope? Yeah, well, I'll tell you, I, historians don't often get to say this. And so I'm like, I, I, I love getting to say this because there is new, something new under the sun. Um, and there's something new under the sun, Is from my point of view, is uh, the harm reduction movement. And that is, in all of this history that I've been telling there's been a key voice absent in uh, who, who was making decisions about drug policy. And that was people who use drugs. Uh, they Everybody's talking about them. Everybody's trying to make decisions that they think are in their best interest or that are protecting people from them. But their own voices have been really disparaged and marginalized. And, um, you know, to have organized collective action on the part of people who use drugs, uh, inserting their point of view, insisting on their voices in this conversation. And in some cases, like in at least in the New York chapter of the Drug Policy Alliance, being explicitly anti-racist, like recognizing that you can't do you can't do good drug policy like there is no colorblind good drug policy. Right. You have to be actively anti-racist to have any hope of, of achieving what you need to achieve there. I find it really inspiring. I mean, these are these are such impressive people, and their that the the motivation of love uh, that drives uh, that drives them is just like you know. It, it it um I find it really moving and inspiring. And because it is because it is new, it gives me hope that they're that uh you know that the dance will change this time. You know, one of the partners is not is not following the same steps. And this this uh, Safe Consumption Rooms is an example like that. that that's inconceivable. Like that, that there's no point at which there was anything approaching any possibility that, that was going to happen in the 150 years the, uh, of history that I've been writing on this book. And yet, in some sense, it's so logical. It's like, hey, we should build roads to drive cars on because it'll be way safer. Like, you know, we should if, you know, how do we use this product safely? i got an idea. You know, how about paved roads, or how about safe consumption sites? It makes a lot of sense, but uh, every little achievement like that, I, I think uh, it comes from people who broke that Gordian knot of, um, you know, going back and forth between medicalizing and prohibition, which is kind of between two different groups that whose goal is to control people into abstinence, when abstinence, at least at a so social society-wide level is not a realistic goal. Um, that they're really succeeding in changing the terms, and I, I hope you know it's hard to it's hard to be too optimistic as a historian, you know, because you've seen so much so much under the bridge. But they really do, and um, and if if our fate is going to be in anyone's hands, like I I would be glad that it's in their hands.
1: I think that is a perfect place to end this with uh, a call to, to have more people who use drugs at the table. I echo that. I love that very much. And that's one of the stated goals of, of my organization, Choose Your Struggle. David, it was wonderful chatting with you. Everybody, please, please, please go out and buy the book, White Market Drugs. I think David will, will agree with me when I say support your local bookstore uh, or, or check out somewhere like bookshop.org uh, and, and, and support their work. Uh, David, any final word for the listeners? Uh,
0: you know, just thanks. I, I love having a chance to talk about this. Thank you for your time.
1: Definitely. Well, thanks so much. And uh, everybody check out the next episode of the New bu- New Books Network wherever you get your podcast. Thanks so much.